1: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague Joe Healy. And we are coming to you a little early this week as we get ready for week nine of college baseball around the country. Uh, And because this weekend is Easter weekend, several of these series are starting a day early. And so we are coming to you here on the podcast a day early to make sure you you have time to, to get ready Uh, for the weekend uh, of college baseball, a busy one, as usual, now that we're into conference play and rapidly approaching May and uh, the stretch run, but not quite there yet, but still a a good weekend, a lot of big series around the country. You've got a top 25 showdown in the SEC West with LSU visiting Arkansas, you've got Florida State and Louisville uh, in another top 25 matchup, a big one out of the Pac-12, Stanford and UCLA. Uh, we're gonna get to all of that and more here on today's edition of the podcast. Uh, now, Joe, we're coming to you, coming to the listeners early. We're also recording early. That means that all of the midweek stuff has not shaken out yet, and typically it has, but uh, already this week we had some some breaking news uh, as BYU coach Mike Littlewood resigned on Monday, citing personal reasons and uh, no further information on that one, but Mike Littlewood uh, spent a decade as a head coach at his alma mater and, uh, you know, did a, did a really good job with the Cougars uh, and now in the middle of the year with BYU at six and six overall in the WCC and coming off of the sweep of Santa Clara. Uh, BYU is, uh, now under the direction of associate head coach, Trent Pratt.
2: Interestingly enough, when we, when we finished recording the last episode, we were talking about when we were going to record this one. And, and one of the things that we were like, well, you know, it might be a little bit quicker paced episode because we know we're not going to have any news because there just won't be time for it. And yet <laughs> here we are. Um, but yeah, just a surprising, surprising bit of news here and certainly um, with no further information hope everything is is okay for all parties involved there um and it's an interesting time for byu baseball because uh, on a few fronts and I, and i made sure to get out there and, and make sure to be clear about the most important thing is that because it was cited as personal reasons you're just you hope um you know everybody involved here is is do, is doing well and, and and whatever it is because i'm going to quickly move on to kind of the transaction side of it which is that it's an interesting time in BYU baseball to be having this change on a couple of fronts. One is that obviously BYU, as you noted in the coaching changes tracker, which people can go to baseballamerica.com and read to get caught up on the openings that were many of which are we're still looking at. You know, we'll go into the offseason looking to fill, but you mentioned that they're going to the, B, uh, the Big 12 here in a couple of years. And while it is a slightly diluted version of the big 12 without Texas and Oklahoma, it is still a big step up in terms of competition for BYU. And how does that change? If at all, kind of the way they look at this, at this coaching search, I think in some ways it will. And in some ways it won't, we can certainly dig into that a little more as, as time goes on. Um, so there's that it, there's also the fact that BYU has been a pretty successful program in recent years, but I think it's also fair to say that the talent has at times outpaced the results there they've had some it seems like they're kind of on a roller coaster where that they have good years followed by kind of confoundingly bad years and they've kind of been a little bit up and down and there hasn't been the regional appearances we would have thought and there was a near miss in 2019 for regionals and maybe we look at it differently if they get in there but either way it's a talented program a lot of talent there and coach littlewood deserves a lot of credit for bringing that there it just felt like a program that couldn't quite get over the hump. Um, but I think it also showed just kind of the latent potential in BYU, especially now that they're joining a major conference.
1: It made regionals in 2017. That was their first appearance since 2002. I think there was also a near miss in 16. Um, so there was, they, they have been good, uh, in, in recent years, really competitive in the WCC. Uh, and they're, I mean, they're not terribly far off first place now. I think they're three games behind Gonzaga. And if you just say, well, okay, Gonzaga is far and away right now, the the class of the program, like they're not far behind the rest of the pack there at all. They're, they're very much uh, in the mix to make the WCC tournament, which is now six teams. That was announced uh, last week that they have expanded from four to six. Uh, so I would kind of expect BYU to certainly would have expected BYU to make the tournament before Monday's announcement still probably would expect them to to finish in the top 6 there in the WCC and you know then we'll just see what happens uh in the long run in terms of replacements BYU as a um you know institution of the Church of Latter-day Saints does things slightly uniquely if you look at the way that they go about coaching searches um specifically, you know, I mean, they've done enough football coaching searches in recent times. I think that you can kind of look at the way those have gone down. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to, to wait and see on that one. Um, but yeah, as, as they prepare to go into the big 12, this, whoever the new coach is, will be the one leading the way there. And, uh, obviously it's a step up to go from the WCC to the big 12 and, and, uh, it's a big, big time for the program. Uh, and, and now whoever the new coach will be it, it's going to be about trying to trying to build on what Mike Littlewood was able to do over the last decade. All right so with that news uh Joe let's uh, let's move on to uh, to the games at hand this weekend and you know what let's start out west. Uh, I am very intrigued by this one. It's uh, Stanford visiting UCLA, two teams we have ranked in the top 15. Uh, The Pac-12 has already kind of separated itself into uh, five contending teams, five teams that look like their regional teams, and then the rest of the conference. These are two of the teams that are contending and look like regional teams. And so anytime any of those, those teams match up, the rest of the season it's going to be a big deal and this is uh this is a big deal in la uh the bruins coming in uh very hot of of late stanford has uh has heated up as well after a slow start and uh should be a really well-pitched matchup ucla is uh in, in the top of the country in terms of era but uh stanford while they're like a full run behind UCLA in terms of team ERA. They are number two in the PAC 12. So I expect this to be a well pitched series and uh, just a well-played series overall uh, out in Westwood.
2: I was looking at Stanford earlier and we we, we've talked a decent amount about how it's just been kind of it has been a a little bit tougher going than we expected for the Cardinal. And I I won't dispute that because I I, I agree with that generally. But I I look at their record. I was kind of just scrolling their schedule today and I had not realized that they haven't played a midweek game since the month of February. And that was on a Monday. So like, but it is it, spiritually it's a midweek game. Um, I guess they played one last week, pardon me against St. Mary's, but point being they, they went lost. a month. Basically. Yes. They went basically a month without a midweek game. And so, you know, if, if you sprinkle in a few wins here and there, like that record probably looks a little better than what it does now, which is 17 and 10. So I wonder if just psychologically, seeing a record that doesn't look like some of the others in this range of the rankings or within the PAC 12 or what have you has been kind of throwing off our gauge for what Stanford is. And I don't know, maybe uh, just something I really, to be honest, hadn't noticed. So um, that, that's kind of an interesting little, little tidbit there. Um, yeah. The, the thing about Stanford's pitching is since we sounded the alarm, whatever that was a few weeks ago about like, Oh, is, is Stanford's pitching um, backtracking from what we thought they were doing they've they've actually done a a pretty good job um you know alex williams obviously has has stepped up in a big way and been um, kind of what they looked for him to be as a guy at the front of the rotation quinn matthews now they're they're still using him in really pretty interesting ways in terms of using him in relief or longer relief outings and it seems like week week to week we're not going to know exactly what to expect out of him um but they've you know that they've 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 gotten what they're looking for out of him. So it does feel like they've taken some steps forward. And I do think this is a weekend where, if that's true, if that's real and not just a mirage, if I'm right about that, this is the kind of weekend where they can handle the UCLA offense because we've talked about it before. We don't need to belabor the point, but this is not a particularly offensive UCLA offense. They do some things well. They're not going to beat themselves. We we know it's a John Savage team, so they're gonna they're going to play small ball well. And they're going to try to win games that way. They do have a handful of guys that, that can beat you offensively by and large. This is an offense you can work around if you're pitching well. And so to me, that's kind of, that's kind of a thing here. If Stanford's pitching improvement um, over the last, I don't know, let's call it a month or so is kind of what we think it is, or what I think it is. At least, I think this is an offense they can handle. That feels like the matchup to me that, that is going to be key here.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I, um I'm very interested to see how UCLA over the next month, just kind of handles month, month plus, I guess now, how these young UCLA players handle the, the pressure that's going to come from being a part of a PAC 12 title race, if they are going to be a part of it. And I I think that starts this week, obviously to this point, they've, they've done very well, but you also kind of wonder about freshman walls and all, all the rest of that. Um, and uh the the stanford team is a little more experienced obviously they were in omaha last year does that give them an edge uh but th- this is a big opportunity for stanford they've already played arizona and oregon state and oregon so this is really really the last big hurdle for the cardinal and uh it it, it comes at a you know in a difficult place to to play uh against a difficult team, but if they once they get past this, it should be a little bit freer sailing for them within the PAC 12.
2: Does it feel so, you know, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, but they are largely offensively and Brock Jones has been better in PAC 12 play. Like I, I, it should be noted. Like he's, he's been a pretty decent offensive player in terms of things like getting on base, so on and so forth. He's been better in general though, in PAC 12 play. However, it's still fair to say he's not had the season we expected him to have. So. Do you see it as – because I could go either way, I think. Do you see it as, as, like, a good news or a bad news situation that Stanford has done what it's done so far really without Brock Jones, Drew Bowser, or Tommy Troy being the guys offensively?
1: I mean, for me, that's – yeah, I was about to say good news because I was going to say, well, like, the I would still think those guys will turn it around or at least one of them maybe maybe specifically the guy i picked to win player of the year will turn it around but yeah on the other hand stanford has played 27 games they're halfway through the season they are what they are probably in in many respects so maybe it's just bad that those guys are struggling to to the extent that they they have um so i guess maybe that's the answer i will land on with the the hope obviously that that they do show improvement that they are able to make the eventual step forward. But, but for now I think I'll land on it's uh it's bad news for the Cardinal.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's where I land. If if the question is asked two or three weeks ago, it's probably a different answer just because you've got more time, more runway to kind of get them going. And um, if it is a guy though, I would point to Brock Jones, not just because he's been a little bit better of late, but also just because, you know, he's always done He's, he's done a good job all year taking walks and it's clear that he's not he probably could have done a lot more swinging and his strikeout rate would have skyrocketed and maybe he hit a few more home runs or, or whatever um but he hasn't done that necessarily and so i do think there's positives for the fact that he's probably actually not been all that bad he's probably just getting pitched pretty well and pitched pretty carefully and so maybe that is a sign that hey you know what maybe he maybe he's okay and then maybe as 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 pitchers make mistakes as the season goes on, maybe he'll be able to capitalize it. You know, I don't know, but it, that is a tricky little thing because that is where Stanford has been. And if it weren't for guys like Carter Graham and, and Brett Barrera, like I shudder to think where, <laughs> where the Stanford offense would, would be um, you mentioned, and uh, we've talked about, you know, UCLA being, being hot and they've done it in a very like UCLA way. Their last seven games have been decided by one run and they're six and one. Um, if that's not like a UCLA stat, I don't really know what is. Um, that's just kind of kind of what UCLA UCLA does. And the, the big question with them is because they've been so solid the first two days of the weekend, and they really had been solid all weekend on the mound before that Hurd went down. But you know, Jake Brooks and, and Mac Ratchik have been have been really good. And I think Ratchick's an important piece of that because as a converted reliever, you just never quite know if that's gonna take because we hadn't seen it from him. I mean, he was kind of a, a short reliever last year. Um, but that is, that has taken. So what does UCLA do on Sundays? Last weekend, they started gauge jump and, you know, that didn't go so well. And they ended up giving up seven runs to Utah on Sunday, you know, in a loss. And so that's we can chalk that up to not working necessarily. They've got options. They could go back to Kelly Austin. Probably he's had his moments. I, you know, I liked what I saw from him reasonably well when I saw him in Houston. He is a weapon in the bullpen, but he also is a guy who can start. If it wasn't UCLA, I would say they could kind of Johnny Holstaff it because they have so many good arms and so many good options that you really can just kind of piece it together. But you and I both know that's not really how UCLA wants to do business. And so they might get forced into that from time to time, but that's certainly not really how they're going to want to approach it.
1: No. And I, I found it interesting. So when they announced their rotation last week and that um, Thatcher Heard was, was not a part of it. Uh, and they've since announced what his actual injury is. And it's very long and I haven't heard of it before in, They have not put a timeline on him, so we'll just have to continue to monitor uh, Thatcher Hurd's situation, but I would not expect him anytime soon, I guess. Um, But anyway, they announced Jump, and I tweeted it, and the excitement that was out there for Gage Jump from, you know, people that had been a part of his high school career or, uh, you know, just had had watched him or or whatever, like, he is – an absolutely, you know, he he has a ton of talent and and people are right to be excited about him, but it was more than I could have imagined, uh, you know, the excitement level for, for gauge jump. So hopefully, you know, that was just a, you know, that was his first career start. Uh, He honestly hadn't even pitched that much to that point. Did it, you know, in a tough environment in Utah, pitching in elevation, uh, hopefully, if if they do put him back out there on Sunday this weekend, um, he'll pitching in a more normal, you know, home, not at sea level or at sea level, not at elevation. You know, hopefully, all of that means that you get a little bit more of the gauge jump that that you're looking for. And I, uh, I, I will I will be eager to see how UCLA decides to to line it up from here. Yes, Kelly Austin is an option. He was there at the start of the season and looked pretty good at it. Uh, but it does seem like he's become one of the more trusted guys in the bullpen now. So uh, a lot of different ways they could swing it. Um certainly, and uh we'll we'll just have to to continue to see. But I, I would guess that it'd be gauge jump again this weekend.
2: Yeah. And you know, they've like I said, they've got you know, they they are um an embarrassment of riches to to use a phrase. So I think they'll. I think they'll probably figure it out. Uh, one thing I should have. I was remiss, and and I, I hate to backtrack, but it was one thing I, I meant to bring up that that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is one thing. Good, bit of good news, both mostly offensively, but also I think, uh, on the mound is that after kind of looking like maybe there was a little bit of backsliding going going on, uh, Braden Montgomery seems to have turned it on a little bit for Stanford lately. He hit a home run in each of the three games last weekend against Arizona State. Had two hits in each of the three games last weekend against Arizona State. He also threw an inning on the mound uh, last midweek against St. Mary's and gave up a run, but also struck out the side. And so it kind of, you know, I remember the first couple weeks of the season, there was a lot of excitement about what he could do. I mean, his first, you know, four appearances as a short reliever were electric and he, you know, didn't give up a run in his first four appearances and he was, you know, hitting the cover off the ball early. And so it kind of looked like, Hey, this guy's like a immediate superstar in college baseball. And it hasn't Quite been that easy for him but Perhaps you know understanding of course that there Might still be a freshman wall that Is approaching there are also times Where freshmen kind of go through midseason lulls and then pick it back up as they get a Little more acclimated to What the reality of the season is so uh, I think that's well, a,
1: and it's a matter of adjustments, Right so like they adjusted he came In uh like a wrecking ball As as uh, Miley Cyrus Might say mm-hmm. and I've heard
2: that a time Or two yeah
1: yeah and so people were like what didn't know what to do didn't have enough information on him then you get the information you make the adjustment and then it's on you the the player to to adjust to the adjustment and it looks like that's that's what's happened and maybe it wasn't a precise like oh well they they took away my curveball so like you know what you know something like that it might just have been uh like oh we actually are you know we we're, we're ready for this player coming out of the bullpen we're ready for this player in the batter's box. We have a real plan. We're not just throwing straight fastballs uh, and and just having the grind of college baseball. It it might just be an adjustment like that that you then have to make rather than, you know, a a significant tweak, but you know, baseball is is all about the adjustments and it does seem like he has made some sort of adjustment, even if it's just a mental adjustment or whatever to to be more used to uh, to. To the level of play that he's experiencing now in the Pac-12.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it, but uh, you know a, a big development there in a world where you know maybe maybe you don't ever get the best version of, of Bowser or Troy or or Jones this season. Um, if you get the best version of Braden Montgomery, that's a, a pretty good, pretty good addition to have. If maybe you thought three weeks ago that we maybe had seen the best of him this season already.
1: Hardy in the USA or wrecking ball.
2: Uh, Party in the USA, uh, because I, f- both good songs, Party in the USA, I think just is like one of the, I think that's going to be one of those classic, so like 20 years from now, you're going to hear that in a stadium and it's going to get the people going in the same way that it did when it first came out. Uh, I think Wrecking Ball is just a different song. Um, but Party in the USA has versatility. You know, you can sing it at sporting events or at parties or in the car, at the top of your lungs. Um. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go that direction, but I, I could hear an argument either way.
1: I, I mean, I think that your your versatility argument for "Party in the USA" is is, is huge. Like, like that that absolutely is there. Um, you know, from a pure like work of music standpoint, "Wrecking Ball" might be better. Like, I'm not here to truly judge that, but uh, "Party in the USA" is a bop. There's uh, there's no doubt about that. And I mean, uh, I, I guess Stanford might be hopping off the plane in LAX with uh maybe they've got a dream this weekend i don't know we'll uh we'll have to wait and see on that one
2: yeah no I, that's uh yeah i i probably should have just left it there instead of jumping back in that was a pretty good little segue there um so i will <laughs> awkwardly slink away from the microphone here uh and we'll pretend like
1: it didn't happen if, uh, if the Baseball America College podcast had a bit bigger budget, we would now cut to an ad break with uh, Party in the USA playing, but we don't. Mm-hmm. So instead, you get me saying, uh, we'll be back in a minute, but first, check this out.
3: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
0: All right, Joe. Let's uh, let's flip
1: coasts and uh, let, let's uh, let's. Well, I guess they're not really on the coast. Well, let's go to Fayetteville. I got nothing. We're not going to any coast. The the people of Arkansas do not want to be known as, as the East Coast. Uh, so let's uh, let, let's go to the Central Time Zone, where it's LSU taking on Arkansas in Fayetteville. This is like every series in the SEC West. Apparently, at this point, four, four first place in the SEC West. Arkansas has a game edge on uh, three other teams in the in the division. One of them is LSU. Arkansas coming off of a series loss at Florida. That was its first series loss of the year. LSU coming off of a big sweep on the road in Starkville. Uh, so LSU now now with the really difficult double of Starkville and Fayetteville in back-to-back weekends. We'll uh we'll find out a lot I think about what what LSU is made of. Uh, LSU's road schedule in the SEC as a side note has been brutal. They were also in Gainesville already this year. Uh just uh incredible, but they they won the series in Gainesville. They swept in Starkville, now they're going to bomb Walker.
2: Yeah, that's um, you know, not easy as they would say. Um I think for LSU, it's, you mentioned it being a good opportunity. I think that's exactly right. Like, I think this is a series where if LSU can come out and play well and win this series, I think it kind of gets LSU to something back, like what we kind of thought this team would be, right? It's still, it's not a team. It's still not a team without questions and without concerns, but uh, a team that is overcoming them to win games. And I think we thought that's ultimately what they would be. And for a while there, it looked like, oh, maybe they maybe they won't be able to necessarily overcome them. But now they're starting to to get there. And I think it, this series in particular presents a a tasty matchup on Fridays where Connor Noland has been has been so good for Arkansas. But this is going to be the best offense he's seen in SEC play in particular. I mean, it's it's, you know, Kentucky and uh, Missouri and Mississippi state and Florida. And there's really not an elite offense in that bunch. And, you know, Florida is probably the best one he's seen. And that's, you know, he, he did, he did well there obviously. Um, but this is a different test altogether. So I think that's going to be a really fun opener on Thursday to to see what, to see what Nolan is made of and also for LSU to get off on the right foot.
1: Yeah. I think that's a a great point. And, you know, just the way Nolan has pitched this year has been, I mean, you talked about where would Stanford be without the development of some guys offensively, considering the the struggles of, of some experienced guys. We talked obviously at length coming into the season about well, okay, like Arkansas just is without it's the guys who threw the, the 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 top five pitchers from last year's team in terms of innings pitched. What are they going to do? And they uh the, the answer was turn to connor noland and you know you had heard the buzz about what he had done in fall ball and um you know how he looked coming into the season but you know still like uh, th- there's a difference between that and and what happens and he has absolutely exceeded my expectations and i would suggest probably exceeded all expectations because he's he's truly become uh a, a weapon for them at, at the front of the rotation and the pitch and staff has fallen into place uh, pretty well behind him to this point.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, t- tail as old as time. You hear about pitcher in the fall that oh, he's he's either he's taken a step forward if it's a pitcher who really hasn't established himself, or oh, he's this is the best we've seen him throw if it's a pitcher who has gone through some ups and downs in his career. And we've we've just heard that so often. And and I think at this point, like I am largely. I'm not saying I, I immediately disbelieve it, but I, I just know to, to take that often with a grain of salt. Um, in this case, though, it was it was right on because he has been exactly that guy. And without him, you're looking at, you know, Hagan Smith has had his moments, but hey, he's a freshman. And, and Jackson Wiggins is is a good arm that I think is has been a little more solid than I expected. Uh, but still, that's a lot of volatility in that rotation uh, without, without Connor Noland. On the flip side of it, you know, a few weeks ago, I think we would have talked a little bit about, hey, you know, maybe this is a series where this. We've talked about this Arkansas offense being good, but maybe not as excellent as we thought it might be, right? And I think we would have talked a couple of weeks ago if this series happened then about this is a real opportunity for Arkansas's offense to maybe get right a little bit and to, and to feast a little bit. And and I have to give LSU a lot of credit. You know, you when you got back from Baton Rouge, you talked about hey, this is a a team that seems commi- a coaching staff that seems committed to really leaving no stone unturned on figuring out what it's going to do on the mound. And maybe it hasn't been like the most, uh, the biggest change or the most radical change they've done to, to what they've done on the mound, but however they've done it, they've managed to find some guys now, you know, Vittmeyer and Razelman and Bryce Collins and Samuel Dutton and Paul Gervais. And, you know, just, they found some depth here. They found some quality. Um, you know, they've turned to some steady veterans who won't necessarily blow you away guys like Mikhail Hilliard to get it done um even in the face of course with you know um dealing with you know Blake Money and he you know had a little bit of an injury there and then comes back and he's not as sharp as he was earlier it's not that they've been without uh adversity but they've pushed through it and they found some guys in the mound and it's obviously still not an elite pitching staff I don't think but my goodness you talk about being in a better place than they were a few weeks ago and, and that's certainly the LSU pitching staff
1: yeah absolutely and uh they I when I left Baton Rouge, I thought that maybe they were going to, you know, really really blow it up and do something what like what Ole Miss is doing and say like there are no starting pitchers here; they're just pitchers, and you know we're just trying to we're trying to get through each day. Uh, And it hasn't quite been like that at all. And uh, I think that's a a credit to uh, to to what the the pitchers at LSU have been able to do, just that they've uh, you know kind of taken upon themselves to to go out and, and be better. Um, one thing I am interested here is, uh, defensively, the, these two teams, Arkansas has, is the best fielding team in the sec third best in the nation fielding nine eighty five, uh, LSU is not that. And I do feel like LSU has been a bit better of late in terms of, of fielding. Um, I, I think the numbers bear that out too, but there's still, nobody's going to confuse them with Arkansas's infield. And, you know, so does does that impact this weekend? Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but uh, that is an area where Arkansas has the edge. And, um, you know, that if if you're gonna get, you do not wanna give Arkansas free bases, whether we're talking about walks, errors, hit by pitch, you know, whatever, that you cannot afford to give Arkansas extra bases or extra outs. And so that is something that I think LSU uh, has to be pretty careful of this weekend.
2: I think that's right. I mean, especially with it being at home, um, you know, you you start getting that's a tough environment in general. But then you start putting runners on bases and they, they start doing hog calls and it it gets it gets loud in there and it gets it's daunting. And you really open the door for things to snowball on you when you when you allow that to happen. And oh, by the way, that can affect your defense. If you're a porous defense as it is like, you know, good luck on a, you know, a Bermuda Triangle pop up or a slow roller you have to make a play on when you can't hear yourself think, and you're a little bit flustered and rattled. And this is where a home field advantage can, can play a part in a situation like that. So I I think you're right to kind of key in on that because it, it it does feel like if some of these familiar issues for LSU crop up, this is not really the atmosphere in which they're going to be able to overcome those on the fly. They're just going to have to play solid from the start.
1: The, uh, the, the good news for, um, for Arkansas as they are at home uh which is a good place to be if you're you're trying to get right after a tough series loss uh the bad news is that you know this this uh series has a kind of tradition of wacky things happening uh this was the rally possum series several years ago and just weird things happen in LSU Arkansas and you know so we'll uh, we'll see if any of those things uh you know rear their head this weekend but I I am very interested in this one, and you know the SEC West race has, has tightened considerably in a way that I didn't see coming. Uh, you know the two Mississippi schools are the ones that have fallen off the pace. Everyone else is is right there, uh, hanging together, and every one of these is going to be significant going down the stretch. Uh, in terms of, it's easy to look at the division race and what that means, but really in terms of the hosting race, because. Uh, somebody's going to host out of the SEC West. And uh right now, you know, we're assuming that to be Arkansas because we assume Arkansas to to be the best team. But hey, Arkansas's got uh got real work to do in terms of RPI. Uh so does LSU. But uh, you know, this weekend gonna be very helpful for for both teams uh from that standpoint. But but all of these teams in the SEC West, uh certainly the top five anyway, and you know, we'll see about the Mississippi schools, uh, are You know, every week is going to be very important for them uh, going forward. All right, Joe. Let's uh, switch over to the ACC. We've got Louisville heading to Florida State. Florida State uh, in a bit of a more than a bit of a skid. They are in a skid right now. Uh, As we record this, they have not played Florida on Tuesday night. Uh, That's a really significant game uh, in terms of mindset and everything for the Seminoles going forward, but regardless of how that turns out, it's not going to change the fact that they've lost back-to-back ACC series and are under 500 in ACC play now and really need to get something going. Uh, And yet they have Louisville coming to town, which is uh, in first place in, in the division and coming off of uh a big series win against north carolina that we talked about on the monday podcast and and the way they got it winning saturday and sunday in extra innings just feels like ul probably got a huge lift coming off of this weekend uh so two teams in going going in different directions right now and and for the Knolls this weekend uh, i mean it really couldn't be any bigger
2: yeah they would i mean if they had their druthers they would love probably nothing more right now than to be able to flip this Louisville series for either of, you know, the next two ACC series they have, which is, you know, Clemson or Boston college and no disrespect to those teams, but those are just, uh, on paper, easier series at this point. Um, instead they, they kind of, they, they get Louisville, which is coming off an emotional series win. And I don't know if you're looking for an optimistic view, maybe that that was draining who knows, but the moral of the story is the bottom line for Florida state is they're just the thing that, we all looked at with this team that was going to potentially make them an Omaha team and a national title contender is their pitching staff. And it just has not been the same as of late. Um, You know, it seems like one every weekend they get one of the kind of stereotypically good starts from their starters. And the other two have been a little bit less. So the last couple of weekends Um, and and Ross Dunn on Sundays who I wrote on uh, three strikes, I don't know, a month ago now, three weeks ago now, wasn't that long ago was statistically just as good in a lot of ways as Messick and Hubbard, and that has not been the case. He's been really wearing it on Sundays, and a team that, you know, was right up there with the national leaders in terms of Team ERA. I just did some scrolling. They're now 36th in the country Team ERA. I guess technically tied for 35th in the country uh, in Team ERA, so yeah, they have certainly taken 36. a dive there.
1: Team ERA, you can extend really far. The NCAA
0: well, I guess that's ties. true.
2: I guess that's fair enough. They, they find themselves nestled neatly between Elon and VCU. Uh, a couple of spots behind Oklahoma State. Um, so that's kind of what's happening here. And that seems to be, I don't really want to boil it down to too fine a point necessarily because, you know, series and games have multitudes. But I think that's what it is, right? I mean, I think we kind of know what this FSU offense is. They have nice pieces. that They can put together really good offensive games. But if, if Florida State doesn't pitch better than they have, the last couple of weekends, especially against a good Louisville offense. Like it's just going to be tough to win this series.
1: Louisville is averaging 9.8 runs per game. The entire series comes down to is the Florida state pitching staff that we saw early in the season going to show up or not. And if they do, uh, against this Louisville offense, I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic. You know, that, that would really seem to indicate the Florida state's back on track. Um, but boy, do they have their work cut out for them. And it's not like they have pitched poorly against bad offenses. Uh, You know, they're coming off of a weekend in Atlanta facing the Georgia Tech offense, which is a really difficult thing to do, and you're doing it on the road, but it's not getting any easier against this Louisville offense. You do have the benefit of sleeping in your own bed, but uh, if Florida State's going to win this weekend, it needs Parker Messick and it needs Bryce Hubbard to step up on Friday and Saturday. And look, Louisville's not unbeatable. Pittsburgh beat them two weeks ago. North Carolina, uh, really should have won potentially even swept the series in Louisville last weekend. Neither Pitt nor UNC have the talent on the mound that Florida state does, but Florida state is going to need to pitch at, you know, close to the top of its game. If it's going to, going to take this series
2: phrase um they get to sleep in their own beds like obviously that's meant as much as anything else metaphorically because it's not just the bed it's like the comforts of your own home and familiarity and and all that kind of stuff but i generally find sometimes now it depends like hotel beds are more variable right like um but i i sometimes sleep better in hotel beds i gotta be honest if if you've got a really good one
1: ignore what you do now because you know what you do today you know, your, your sleeping habits are different than they were as a college kid. Uh, but also more importantly, the level of mattress you have today, Joe, I assume it exceeds what you had in your dorm or your college apartment. And so I would, I think you're onto something, but I, I think that, uh, you know, we do have to remember how bad dorm and you know, college, college mattresses can be overall.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Like there's probably, you know, you look at the average college roster and there's like probably I'd set the over under at like at least three and a half players who are like regularly sleeping on something that is not technically a bed, you know, (laughs) Um, like a couch situation, something like that. Um, And I look comfortable couches out there. I've slept on many a couch that was delightful, but uh, you know, night after night, not the best thing for you. So you're right. You know, it's a good point there. And I can certainly vouch for the, uh, the dorm beds that, that I slept on were, uh, you know, I, I think we could kindly put them as kind of like, um, you know, like hospital mattresses. You know, <laughs> I mean,
1: that's Sam Houston that's really State. What direct they, your complaints to Joe Healy. You can find him on Twitter, Joe right. Healy BA, and uh, don't ask him for a donation. Apparently, <laughs> the the, uh,
2: <laughs> the quality of the mattress at Mitchell House. Uh, rest <laughs> in peace to Mitchell House, which was torn down not long after I graduated to make room for a dining hall. A uh, fancy dining hall, not that I'm bitter about it. Uh the dining hall I regularly ate at, uh, again, shout out to uh Belvin, uh, had this uh floor mat at the entrance to it that was uh along like the walkway. And the the walkway up to the the dining hall was covered, but like not really. It was like almost like a bus stop, like a, a bus stop cover, you know. So it's like open air, but it's covered. But that's not gonna stop the rain from just coming in. So that floor mat would get really saturated with water and would take days to dry out so like in the east texas wet months it would get really really wet and then the sun would come out and it would just beat down on this thing and so it would smell terrible it would smell like mildew like on the way into on the way into uh to eat so like not ideal now that again they've uh they fancied up the uh the dining hall situation since i was in college uh many many moons ago now but uh But yes, uh, where, 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 oh, um, Louisville pitching, I think has a, yes, Florida State being at home, their own beds, which hopefully are uh, comfortable and properly uh, made and are are, uh, a place where they can get a good night's sleep. But yeah, Louisville also on on their side, I mean, they have an opportunity now to kind of get right on the mound for a couple of guys who had been very good that, last week or last couple of weeks in some cases just hadn't been as solid as they were before so you know Tate keeners coming off of you know two combined weeks where he's given up 10 earned runs in six innings between his his outings against pitt and north carolina and you know similarly riley phillips nine earned runs in eight innings combined against pitt and north carolina now maybe that's a situation we talked about adjustments maybe those are two guys who you know, we're able to kind of get it done early in the season. And now a little bit of a book is out and it's on them to adjust. Right. Um, Or uh, perhaps those are just speed bumps and these guys are about to get back on track. And the Florida state offense does present an opportunity to do that. We've seen this offense be shut down. I mean, for goodness sakes, we've talked a lot this season about the struggles Georgia tech has had on the mound and and Georgia tech shut them out last weekend, uh, which is something Georgia tech does not do a whole heck of a lot of, especially on a Sunday. Uh, So there is that opportunity for Louisville. So that also feels like um, feels like an opportunity for this pitching staff to show who they, who they really are after a couple of tough weeks or show that, Hey, maybe this is a little bit again, like we thought it might've been early in the season, a little bit of a vulnerability for the Cardinals moving forward.
1: I think either way, it's a, it's a big week for both of these teams, Florida state, um, you know, has been vulnerable now for, for two weeks. And, you know, it, it needs to get back on track if it's serious about hosting and, getting into this, uh, division title race or staying in this division title race. It it is another team that, you know, we're projecting as a host right now, but has real RPI work to do. And this weekend is a chance for it. And from Florida state's perspective, again, they're coming in on the heels of back-to-back ACC series losses, seven and eight at the midpoint in the season. Um, you know, they have work to do in, in the second half, if they're, gonna you know make the NCAA tournament and and do other things. So uh big weekend all around this week uh in Tallahassee. We'll be very interested to see uh how this one shakes out and and I think that the the contrast and styles uh, makes it all the more interesting for me at least. Uh all right Joe let's uh let's flip over to the Big 12. Couple of interesting series here this weekend as uh TCU hosts Texas Tech and the Horned Frogs, uh, coming off of back-to-back Big 12 losses, really need a result here. Tech uh, with an opportunity to uh, go on the road and play, uh, you know, one of the better teams of the Big 12, and they also could use some RPI work uh, as as they I to, you know, improve their hosting resume, but. The series we really want to talk about here is Oklahoma State traveling to Morgantown. West Virginia is 5-1 and one in the Big 12 right now, and having beaten TCU and, and Baylor, now they get Oklahoma State, uh, which is coming off of uh, a significant series win in, in Bedlam last weekend. This is a team that is absolutely contending for the Big 12 title. West Virginia is a bit of a surprise package, uh, but is going to get their first crack at one of the the top contenders in the Big 12 this weekend, and they get to do it in Morgantown, uh, which is a place where West Virginia is always very difficult to beat.
2: Yeah, and it looks like we had the – I watched a little bit of, especially the opener last weekend because it started early before a lot of stuff had happened, but West Virginia and Baylor, it looks like they had the old – you know, kind of the extra home field advantage in places like Morgantown. And I I don't mean this as a pejorative. I truly mean this where it was just cold and damp and gray. And um, that can be an advantage because those guys are kind of just used to that weather. That's just the reality, right? And so you're a team like Baylor from Central Texas and, you know, it's a little bit warmer there right now and probably a little bit sunnier. And, Um, so to have to go to Morgantown, a tough place to play. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, right? I mean, getting to Morgantown is a chore in and of itself. I think I heard on the broadcast, they fly into Pittsburgh and go down to Morgantown. I don't know how far that is, but, um, I know it's not right next door. So there is, there's all that stuff that kind of goes into it that makes that a tough, a tough trip. And before talking about the on-field thing, I was going to talk about just how important what West Virginia has already done is to making them a postseason team because they've essentially won the last two weekends toss-up series, uh, you know, and you could even call TCU l- less than a toss-up series because it was on the road. But, you know, those are teams occupying a somewhat similar space in the big 12, at least on paper, but they win that series. And then they sweep Baylor uh, at home last weekend. So they're five and one against, you know, two teams that kind of had similar aspirations coming into the season. And so if you're WVU, WVU, you're sitting in a pretty good place where, you know, sure, you're going to have opportunity series against Oklahoma State, Texas Tech the weekend after that, Texas later this season, but they've still got series against Kansas and Kansas State, and those are going to be schools that WVU is, is going to expect to win series against and another toss-up series against Oklahoma, and so you're very quickly looking at the Mountaineers and, and kind of looking at it and saying, at this point, they're going to have to probably drop some games they're not expected to drop, and look, could that or maybe will that happen? Like, you know, probably, but. They are in a good position in the driver's seat where they really do control to use a phrase I don't like. I just don't know what else, well, their phrase to use here. They do kind of control their own destiny in terms of you've done enough work now. If you just really win the games you should win in the Big 12, like you're you're gonna be a postseason team. And for a WVU team that's still pretty young and still learning how to win and last year just didn't have a very good year, like that's I think that's a pretty good place to be.
1: I, I definitely agree. West Virginia at this point is almost going to have to try not to make the NCAA tournament. And, uh, you know, it just feels like it, more often than not lately, West Virginia is, is in this mix. It would be their third trip if they do make it to regionals in five years, five seasons. And, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's really impressive. And, and Randy Mazie always has his team ready to play, uh, down the stretch and, and, even in the years where they haven't made it, I feel like they always make noise in the big 12 tournament They're They are a pesky team and that's what West or what Oklahoma state is going to have to deal with this weekend. Like not on the macro level, just on the, on the actual micro level. If you look at Oklahoma state, you say like, this is the more talented team. This is the team that, you know, has done all, all the, all the great things so far this season. You know, they, they're the ones that, that just, uh, went out and, and won a tough series against Oklahoma. They've gone on the road in one series. They, they they've done what, what you need to see Oklahoma State do. And yet, uh, I ex- fully expect this weekend to be a very very difficult one for for the Pokes.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, being pesky is probably just the right way to put it. And I think this, I mean, in, I think this West Virginia team is is exactly that type of team. And I think they're they're pretty fun. I mean, it's a team that's stolen 102 bases they're athletic. They defend pretty well. Austin Davis and Victor Scott are, are very good defenders in the outfield. Tevin Tucker is a very good defender on the infield. And he frankly has to be because he's hitting 157. I mean, he does steal some bases, so he gives you some value there, but he's he's not in there for the bat. He's in there to defend. And um, so they are kind of a, a fun little team to watch. And I, I shouldn't say fun little team because that does sound like a pejorative. They're, they're just a fun team to watch. And they, you know, I talked about them still being pretty young, and it really is outside of guys like Davis and Scott who are having nice years. It, It is a lot of young hitters who are just having breakout years or who have broken out right away in their careers. McGuire Holbrook is a sophomore, Braden Berry is a sophomore, JJ Weatherholt is a freshman, Grant Hussey is another highly touted freshman. He got off to a pretty strong start. He's been scuffling as of late, but he's talented enough that. You know, you're kind of just waiting on him maybe to find another gear this season. It seems like that's been a theme of this podcast is kind of talking about, hey, what can we expect from these these young players who have maybe hit downturns? You know, he's another one to think about, but it's it's just a team that's going to keep their foot on the gas all weekend. And that's just that is really, really hard to play against, especially if you if you scuffle a little bit or if if you start chasing runs or if you get frustrated or if the weather sucks or whatever it is those types of teams are just really tough to play for and play against, I should say. And WVU's is in a position where they're good enough to win the series straight up. But when you add the being at home and playing the style of play that they have um, adds another layer onto it. It's just going to be a tough, tough weekend for the Cowboys.
1: I think uh, probably looking at a, a series where runs are kind of at a premium here. And if, uh, if, however, you are able to, your Oklahoma State is able to get the offense going. I I think that would be indicative of Oklahoma State winning this series. Uh, But, you know, we talked about how good Oklahoma State's bullpen has been. Um, You know, we know that the rotation, all three of the guys uh, that Oklahoma State is going to run out there, what their upside is, West Virginia also very talented on the mound. Uh, You want to don't want to try and leave it late because Trey Braithwaite has been very good at the back of games for the Mountaineers. So I, you know, I, I don't know what the weather is, but you know, it, it just feels like the kind of weekend that, that you don't want, uh, you, you don't want to leave it late for either team trying to, trying to face those bullpens uh, and whatever, whatever runs you can get they're They're going to be big runs. And I, I both of these teams can, uh, you know, can do some of the the moving of runners, the, the stealing of bases. So I I think this series has a lot of potential to to be a really fun watch.
2: No, no doubt. I, this is a this should be a fun one. Uh, good, good, you know, kind of contrast of teams and and two teams. I feel like we're still kind of gathering information on to some degree, doing less of that now as the season goes on. But these are two teams I, I feel like that about one because WVU has kind of snuck up on us a little bit, I think you know at least speaking for myself i was aware of the talent but just thought you know it's probably a year early on them still um you know but i clearly i you know at least to this point it looks like i've been wrong on that one and with oklahoma state it's just that it feels like it's been a while since we've really i mean i guess last year, last weekend with bedlam i guess probably qualifies but otherwise it's been a team that we really haven't seen pushed other than last weekend since like the gonzaga series which they got swept in so this is the first time they've really had a tough test back to back in a while frankly so I think that's interesting from, from that standpoint, one other WVU thing I think worth watching is what they get. I assume and we don't know the rotation yet, but I assume they, and, and also by the way, like it just adds a layer to this, that series starting on Thursday teams kind of approach this differently. Some just kind of move it up, understanding that you get the extra day of rest the following week, because you go back to Friday. Some teams kind of choose to do that differently. We'll see, but, they have been using Jacob Waters at the front of the rotation the last couple of weeks. Um, that went pretty well against TCU. It went less well against Baylor in the opener. Um, he was a guy who started off this season in the bullpen. He and Braithwaite were a really good one, too. And I think at some point it just kind of looks like they decided we just need to some degree to put our best arms you know, in a position to throw more innings, and that's what they've done with Waters. And so um, this weekend I think will be big for determining what exactly he can be moving forward. Is he a guy that they can really feel comfortable in continuing with in the rotation or is maybe, or does maybe he just end up being a reliever and a very good reliever at that, but maybe is he better suited during the stretch run for a bullpen roll?
1: Absolutely. And he is uh, an intriguing draft prospect if, uh, if you're into that. So whenever they throw him this weekend, um, you know, should be a pretty good, pretty good matchup because again, you know, no matter who Oklahoma state's starting, the the three of them are all very intriguing watches. Um, but yeah, the the Thursday to versus Thursday to Saturday versus Friday to Sunday stuff is interesting because and I, I think if you're like Oklahoma State and you have the defined rotation, you just kind of move them up. If you're a team that's already throwing a TBD out there, no matter, <laughs> no matter how we're doing a weekend, uh, you know, you might say, well, like let's just leave the guy uh, the Friday guy, the Friday guy, and you know, we'll, we'll piecemeal it. However, piecemeal it on Thursday versus piecemealing it on Sunday. Uh, and then there are the teams that are throwing their best guy on Saturday. And, you know, so many different ways to approach this, uh, always, always interesting. You, you get to see the sec teams and the WCC teams do it, uh, far more often, but a lot more teams, uh, have to approach it this, uh, this week. So, uh, kind of a, an interesting game within a game. Uh, if you're if you're into that sort of thing, uh, all right. Yeah, so wonder, are, just, oh, oh, go ahead, Joe. Well, that, I,
2: I apologize for sidetracking us, but you mentioned the WCC does it more often, and that's largely because BYU doesn't play on It Sundays. is entirely
1: to that. So coming to the Big Twelve, in that two is. Years.
2: Yeah, but yet oh, I hadn't thought about that. That is interesting. Um, I, I do wonder, like, if we really crunch that data, like, is that an advantage for BYU in Thursday games? Like, I don't know. I don't have a feel for that, you know, but that is kind of an interesting thing. Maybe I'll maybe I'll have to look in that at some point. Maybe It's a I mean, off-season thing or, yeah, you I would, know, I don't a, know.
1: Ahead of 2024 uh, might be worth looking at. And also while we're yeah. on the subject of wondering what the Big 12 is going to do about things, you know, we've seen the SEC make Thursday nights into a thing and look, they have a network, the Big 12 doesn't. I don't know, Joe, has anybody reported before that about why the Big 12 doesn't have a network and uh, anything out there about a Big 12 network that, uh, <laughs> uh, how, how they might've screwed up their TV deal 20 years ago. Anyway um the sec made it a big deal and they put it on sec network and and it's a it's an enjoyable product but they also you know leak games onto espn's other channels sometimes on thursdays like i wonder given that the big 12 is going to have to play on thursday uh for byu if they don't also try and do something similar um obviously that would have to be espn putting them on espnu or or something else but considering that the you know the espn and the big 12 have a pretty significant partnership right now um it would seem like it would be out there we'll we'll see where the big 12 tv deal goes in the future but i uh spitball in here i I, i'd be interested in seeing big 12 games on thursday nights
2: yeah it's it's an interesting thought and and i I would also say that it feels this is a this is a very much a feels thing versus something I've quantitatively studied. It feels to me like the Big Twelve has had a little more presence on TV this year.
1: Not the last; two it still doesn't years, compare. I would to, say since since they put all of their rights on ESPN or all of their third tier rights on ESPN Plus, it feels like there are more. Yes.
2: Yeah. Okay. And you know, I couldn't really remember last year just because last year was such an odd year in general. You know, like I, that I, I wondered. You know, I was. Maybe it was because I was kind of throwing out 2021 as an outlier kind of in my mind, just like, well, I don't think we can take anything from this necessarily. But now that it's been a couple of years, yeah, it, d- it does feel like they're a little more present on TV. And maybe that does suggest that that could be something to uh, to look into in the future. So anyway, I will now let you segue after I uh, derailed us there.
1: All right. So we've taken taken you through the, the four headlining series of the weekend uh, to this point a lot more lot more is out there and every week joe picks uh, an under the radar uh series that that we dive into uh, and and we'll, we'll take you through that and and uh you know head- quickly bullet point whatever else is out there uh this week i kind of picked it for joe i am pretty confident he would have landed on it anyway but uh joe why don't you tell us about the uh the under the radar series
2: well so we're actually going to split it because i i did hear you mentioned that last week and i was like yeah i hadn't really thought about it but that probably would be one so we we will talk about georgia state at georgia southern um we're actually going to do like a little bonus thing here because we did talk about georgia southern a little bit so really it's more of an excuse to talk about georgia state so we will do that um we will i also have another is series. It, wait, wait, out let me guess
1: is it liberty kennesaw
2: it is liberty kennesaw yeah Like selfishly, it's because like I've done a lot of research on Kennesaw this week. So I'm writing about him in three strikes and I don't feel like I'm leaking too much to the listeners by talking about it. Cause by the time they listen to this, the three strikes will basically be out. And if it wasn't out yet, it will have soon been out. So don't feel too weird about that. And also just, you know, I I tried to find something outside of the Sunbelt a little bit too, because the Sunbelt is always going to be available to us this year (laughs) because there are relevant teams, Texas state, and now Georgia Southern from an RPI standpoint, there's probably also going to be like a bubble ish series every week. Like this week, for example, you've got South Alabama at Troy, both of which right now are probably just outside of, of what a bubble RPI would be. The winner of it will probably be back inside of what a bubble RPI would be, especially if that winner is South Alabama on the road. So that conference is kind of always going to be available to us. So, I, I kind of look for something else. So, I will clean up a couple of others real quick. Um, Omaha at North Dakota State, uh, two top teams in the Summit League. Um, Oral Roberts also in that mix, of course. But I, what's interesting there to me is North Dakota State, um, doing this again, like it's a new coach, well, you know, a promoted coach, um, and they lost some guys. Like I kind of expected a little bit of a step back there, but they haven't necessarily had one. I think last year's team was probably a little better in the aggregate, but um they continue to compete at the top of the Sun Belt. That's impressive. Also out west, Cal Baptist visiting Grand Canyon. Um, two best teams in their side of the WAC the the whack is is splitting divisions and basically because those two divisions are so far away from each other you have like the texas side of the texas and new mexico state side of the of the league and then you have the california utah side of the league and so there's not a lot of cross pollination there it's just basically playing within those two it's almost like two conferences that just kind of come together to like have a tournament or whatever um So, but that one on the West Coast side of that league, uh, Cal Baptist at Grand Canyon is a good series. But as you alluded to, we will start with, with Georgia Southern and Georgia State. And, you know, I have to admit that Georgia State is a phenomenon that I was not really necessarily prepared for. And some of that, I think, comes from being a little bit burned by them last year where they played that just like masochistically difficult schedule and actually like played better than I thought they would in that little stretch and then just completely seemed to run out of gas in conference play. And so I kind of felt a little burned by that. So my expectations were tempered, but um, they're now leading the conference, 10 and two, a game ahead of, of Texas state and a couple games ahead of, of everyone else. And I know you've heard some of the same things that I've heard about optimism about that coaching staff doing a really good job there. Um, and it seems like that is starting to bear fruit because don't look now, not only are they leading the conference, but the RPI is good. They play good midweek games and with the RPI situation being what it is in the sunbelt, if they're just in a position where if they continue to win games, this is going to be a postseason team.
1: They are 10 and two in the sunbelt. They've not played the top teams, I would say, but they did just sweep coastal Carolina in Conway and uh, it's, it's heady times uh, for Georgia state. This is Brad Stromdahl's third season uh, as head coach. he, Previously was an assistant coach there then like left and he was a scout and now he's back as head coach. And if generally, if you look at the best times in Georgia state baseball, uh, he is involved in in some way. And that is definitely, definitely true now as, as he's leading the team uh, in, in first place in, uh, in the Sunbelt, this is a huge series. Joe, you kind of pushed me towards Georgia Southern as being the preseason favorite uh, in this conference coming into the year. And then they went out and got swept by Tennessee opening weekend. And at the time we didn't realize that Tennessee was as good as they were. So like not only were they swept, they, they were beat pretty bad. I was like, what did you get me into here Joe? Like I, I, I just, I, I said this team was going to win the the Sun Belt, and, and then this happened. But since uh, Georgia Southern has really uh, gone the, the ship right, and they're coming off of a, a massive series win in San Marcos, and uh, now coming back uh, to another huge, huge series in Statesboro. I, I mean, I like the Eagles in this, but look the way the Panthers are playing, I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable counting them out of anything right now. And um, I, I think their resume needs a little bit of work to to be a postseason resume. They have the raw RPI, but if you look at it, they only have one win against top 50 teams. Um, they're uh they have a losing record away from home. Uh, there are just some underlying things that they're going to need probably to improve. Uh, but to your point, Joe, the, the sunbelt being as good as it is this year just means that if they keep winning sunbelt games, they're not gonna have to worry about that because the the road the the record away from home the the record against top 50 top 100 teams it's just naturally going to improve
2: yeah i mean it's um that's that's the beauty of if you're in a league like this last year it was well it's not even the same as conference usa last year cuz conference usa as we've discussed a million times was the have and have nots pretty clearly but those four teams that were haves in cusa last year were basically teflon because they had built up so much RPI equity to coin that term, I guess that well, they were tough because like they a whole... didn't
1: lose bad games.
2: Exactly, yeah. They just kind of took care of business, and like the because they were all good in RPI to begin with, they all just kind of you know uh, coasted off each other, and like it worked out. The Sun Belt's in a position where you have s- so few bad losses you can take in conference. You have a few, um, but so far Arkansas State, for example, is winless. Like if the Sun Belt wants to be I mean, two bid seems at this point, like, I don't want to say a lot because so much get, but it feels that way. And three is what they're really shooting for. If they want this to be a good, really good year, they need like Arkansas state. I mean, I hate to say it, but they just need them to continue to lose games. Like Appalachian state is taking on water now. Like they need them to continue to lose games. You have to have a defined bottom of this league. Like you really can't have those teams beating the top three or four teams in the league at some point uh, because they're just pesky enough. Um, anyway, yeah, Georgia State or Georgia State, I'm sorry, interesting team. They're built kind of like you might expect an upstart team like this to be built. They're a little more offensive than they are pitching focused. That tends to be kind of the way those things go. Um, you know, they, it looks like, you know, just kind of the way it sets up on the mound, they just really are kind of throwing numbers at you, you know, like in terms of they're just going to use a lot of guys and they've got a lot of guys who have thrown a decent number of innings and it's going to be a volume play on the mound, but they can swing it. Um, and so I'll be, I'll be fascinated this season or this geez, this weekend, I think we'll get a feel for with Georgia State how real is this. Um, against a team like Georgia Southern that has obviously proved its metal. Um, just quickly as like a little parting shot here. um we will have a similar conversation, although a different conversation about Kennesaw State here momentarily. Looking at Boyd's World's RPI's need, RPI needs report, which for those who don't know, it's a great tool, boydsworld.com, uh, like really an OG in terms of like baseball RPI data, doing it forever. He basically runs runs data where he can look at, okay, you have X number of games left. Here's the breakdown of how many you need to win in order to get inside the top 45, the top 32, the top 16, or the top eight. Um. So Georgia Southern shows 23 games left to beat top 16. they need to win 17 or 18 of them. and that's that's pretty lofty, but isn't completely undoable. Um, so that would be an interesting thing if Georgia Southern really gets hot after coming off that series win against Texas State, like there is a window there. Now they've got a lot of tough series coming up the next few weeks, so that's that is a stretch goal, but it is something I think is at least in the uh, window of possibility to to get into that discussion
1: it's true. and uh, you know I, I think that there's an opening, certainly. there's an opening for a lot of these teams uh, because that there just aren't as many hosts being sucked up by the SEC right now as you know we, we typically would see. So Georgia Southern certainly has uh, has that that window. And, and it's interesting that it's them and it's not Texas State, which again, Hunts a series win at Arizona and beat Texas, uh, but they're not the RPI darling of the conference. So I, it, it is a little interesting that it's it's Georgia Southern, but they they are they are the Sun Belt's probably best hosting hope.
2: Yeah, and they could I assume like I I think that's a pretty good. I, f- I believe they
1: could host it's, there. I assume. It's, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's one of the better ones in the league.
0: Shout I, out to JI given,
1: uh, given what the Cajuns have, but it's uh, it's certainly up there. Uh, indeed, yes. Oh, and also um, okay, Conway, so... obviously, which <laughs> I still still sometimes forget the coasters sure, in the yeah. Sun Belt.
2: Uh, so shifting gears now to Liberty at Kennesaw State. Um, the favorite preseason favorite in the A-Sun, which is Liberty, against Kennesaw, which has become kind of the darling of the A-Sun uh, recently swept Stetson last weekend to go to 10 and two, they lost a series to Gulf coast two weekends before, but there are the three conference series they've swept. Um, so that's how they arrive at at 10 and two. I guess we'll just throw it out there to begin with, because it really is kind of the most fascinating thing on paper about this is that Kennesaw State's sitting there with a 10 RPI and it's a, a pretty light resume. Generally it's one of those classic RPI resumes where they just don't have any bad losses and so you do tend to kind of think that that could be a house of cards a little bit where you know you take one bad loss and all of a sudden like the the bottom just falls out of it um and that could still happen i suppose um but with every passing win they kind of uh firm up a little bit you know they Stetson's RPI is you know around 150 right as as i'm looking at it now it's 159 i think it was at around 150 over the weekend they you know, Kennesaw State wins that game and goes up from 13 to 10. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of how that's going. Um, and again, when you look at their needs report, like it is really a stretch for them to get into the top 16. They would have to to really go on a run. I mean, it says, uh, you know, I'm trying to do math on the fly here, which is a dangerous thing for, for me, a political science major. But like to get into the top 16, they're looking at having to win like 19, 18 or 19 of 25 that too is a stretch goal, but that's plausible enough that like, we might have to to contend with it and adding a layer of complication on top of it for the owls is that for three strikes um, I talked to their head coach, Ryan Coe, and he does not think they could host. Uh, I, and you know, he kind of said like, I'm not familiar enough with the, what would have to go into that? Like I'm actually, I guess maybe because we've done this before, I'm more comfortable saying they, I, they cannot host there. Like just Ryan looking Coe at it like that could not coach. happen
1: also from the scouting community uh like brad Stromdo.
2: right exactly so you know that's probably just from him not having been around it now he did coach at Kennesaw before but they were division two and you know it was a different deal so uh i they can i can't imagine they can host there um it is atlanta the general atlanta area i, I so did there's another I, facility I
1: in here and uh okay let's hear it yeah so the in, in the general atlanta team. area you've got two minor league teams rome and Gwinnett, both of them are at home the braves interestingly <laughs> are on the road during regionals weekend so if they can work something out with truest field Truist park whatever it is uh maybe that there are also a variety of like it's metro atlanta they're just a bunch of it's, it's a baseball hotbed for a reason and so there are a bunch of fields running around there uh lake point complex you know east Cobb, etc uh but th- there are tournaments generally around those times, so I'm not saying they couldn't find a, a a spot for it, but it would be hard, I think, to to put together a bid if they were insisting on on being particularly close. I did not expand my search to Savannah or um, you know I don't know. Uh, obviously, there's uh, you know Macon. What what the you know, some of those summer ball now, former minor league now summer ball, uh, stadiums have going on there, but it's Atlanta. You have to believe they probably could find something if they wanted to, but it is also, if you're hosting, um, off campus, uh, it's not an easy thing to do.
2: Yeah. And it's also, if they've got a borderline resume, like humans are making these decisions. And if they're like, The 16th host and there's like a really strong SEC bid in in the 17th spot, like especially because Kennesaw State could so easily travel to any of those southeastern regional locations like they could end up getting squeezed just on a logistics piece of it. I mean, I I, I never also-
1: like to indulge those kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, what I will say is, this is a team that has series loss to Troy and UNCW and Florida Gulf Coast already. So you know,
2: well, like, is it? I mean, let me. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> fair. Like, you're, you're it not going to find like-
1: bit, you're not going to find host resumes with that kind of stuff typically. And and like, look, I I should note Um, that you might you might be listeners saying like, oh, UNCW, they're usually pretty good RPI north of 100, barely, but RPI north of 100.
2: Yeah. Is it not? So let me just clarify, because you say not indulging in like those kind of conspiracy theories, but. Is it, is it not true? I mean, and this is not me contending this. I'm actually, this is a genuine question because maybe I, I understand it wrong, but like, is that all, is that not part of the process where the, the committee could choose like a different bid because the bids themselves are actually part of the selection process versus just the team sheet.
1: So I don't want to speak out of turn here. I don't know precisely that that has been completely written out, but I think that was a thing early in the days of this, that they actually cared about that kind of stuff. Uh, Now, I believe they have really moved past that. Uh, You do have to show them that you can make this, you know, financially viable and and all the rest of it. Uh, But they're not going to sit there, I don't think, and say, well, like, look, if we just put this in Baton Rouge, um, everyone's going to make a whole bunch more money. Um, And so LSU gets to host, despite the fact that, they don't deserve it. Um, they're not going to look at it like that. They, they might look at it and say like, is this actually a viable plan? Uh, th- but pretty much everyone is able that bothers to bid is able to put together something uh, from, from that standpoint. Yeah. Fair enough. But, okay. but I, I mean, I guess you, you hear, you hear people saying like, Oh, like, isn't, isn't just Mississippi state or Ole Miss or LSU or Arkansas. Aren't they just going to host? Cause you know, they're, they're going to put 10,000 fans in the stands and it's going to look great. And like, yeah but like also there are years where those schools don't host and there's a reason for it like this year mississippi state's not going to host i'm comfortable saying that here on on april 12th and look old miss probably isn't going to either um and you know so we'll we'll, these things happen but but that that's what i mean when i say like i'm not i I don't like to indulge in, in those kinds of uh uh conspiracy theories
2: yeah, fair enough. And, and just to clarify, like for me it wasn't even so much like a hey, let's make a whole bunch more money by putting this regional in Baton Rouge, just to use that example. And just more like you know, they're hosting it some complex like an hour away, like is that actually like is that a, a, an atmosphere that is is that a to your wording, a viable host site? I mean, something like that. I mean, if it's if they're going to bid, it would be viable. I don't doubt that. They're not going to put in a sham bid, but it's just like if you're tossing up, like, does it end up being a tiebreaker? And it sounds like the answer is, it should be no. And it sounds like the answer is no. And so that's all, yeah. but the, I just bring that up because like, I think there is clearly I had a little bit of a misconception of it too, but I think there is a misconception out there that that plays an outsized role.
1: I, I believe that if you look at what UCSB did when they hosted it, like Elsinore in 16, 15, 15. Uh, right. They made the, the, the world series in 16. Um, that kind of shows that, look, they don't care as much about that stuff. Like UCSB was allowed to host. And look, that for by all accounts, that was a great regional, very well run. Like Elsinore did a great job with it. But UCSB was allowed to host like an hour off campus. And, um, you know, everything was was pretty hunky-dory there. So I, I think that, you know, it, it, all of this is to say, if Kennesaw State wants to put something together, they can undoubtedly find a way to do it. But it's it's going to be complicated, and I would just looking at their resume right now, kind of find it hard to believe that they do it short of them going on a really spectacular second half run. And I don't mean just winning a bunch of series. I mean like we're talking about like what Tennessee has, has done in the first half.
2: Yeah, I mean they could really put. By the way, like we like we said before, we we have not seen midweek results yet because we're having to record this extra even earlier than we actually thought we were going to be recording it. Um, You know, they could really make this interesting if they like do something crazy, like sweep both of their midweeks they have left with Georgia, you know, because then they've really probably built in like a lot of insulation to their... Yeah, and then I have to stop
1: stop calling them computer trickers and and all the rest of it. But
2: yeah, that's a good segue though to like actually talking about this series because they they haven't played Liberty yet. They have two series left with Liberty. One of them is this weekend. The other is the last weekend of the regular season. And and it has not been easy for Liberty. It has not gone according to expectation for Liberty uh, based on what they did early in the season, notably winning a series against Florida. There are some reasons for that. The offense has lagged a little bit. They're hitting uh, under 270 in conference. They're hitting 259 total this season as, as a group um, that has been a little bit of an issue. Even the guys high on the stat sheet, like Derek Orndorff is still having a really nice year, but he was leading the country in home runs with 10, like in early March, uh to mid-March. And now he's got 12 home runs. So like the power has shorted out a little bit with him. And so there are have been reasons for that. But I, I also still think this is a team that we have not seen enough downturn from them to really believe that anything is too fundamentally wrong here. I still think this is a team that could win the A Sun and could do some damage and, and could if they if they um, you know, if they do enough here, it also feels like a team that would theoretically not totally be dead from an at large standpoint. The RPI is, is still good. It would be more of a resume question. So I say all that to say if Kennesaw State is what their RPI says that theoretically they are, and what the 10 and 2 record in the A Sun says that they are, at least to this point, these are good opportunities for them to prove it this weekend against Liberty. But if it's something less than that, like Liberty could come in here and really exert themselves, you know, assert themselves and take back control of, of the A Sun because the talent is still very good. The pitching has still been very good for Liberty. Uh, Joe Adamets, the front at the in the rotation has been very good. Mason Fluhardy in the bullpen has been dominant. Garrett Horn has recently moved in the rotation and has been pretty good. Um, they've even moved Trey Gibson into the midweeks, um, which maybe is a little mix of. He was struggling a little bit on the weekends and also, oh, by the way, he's got really good stuff and he could actually win us some of these midweek games that could help our overall resume. I think that might be a two birds with one stone kind of situation on the Liberty pitching staff. So, again, um, I think this is a chance for Kennesaw State to prove what they are, because if they're not what these numbers say they are, Liberty's a team that can
1: come in there and beat them. That's absolutely true. And uh, I think it's big that the Kennesaw gets this at home first. I mean, they they eventually have to uh, have to go up to Lynchburg. But I, I, I think getting this one at home, uh, you know, which is a, a very comfortable place for the owls. Uh, and I don't just say that because uh, like, you know, we can go back to the discussion about sleeping in your own bed. They're 11 and two at home versus 10 and seven on the road. So uh, I think it's huge that uh, liberty has to come to kennesaw uh the first time these two teams play because it gives kennesaw state a chance to to play on their own terms and to see what liberty is all about and then maybe when they go to lynchburg they'll be a little more comfortable and maybe by then they'll be a little better about playing on the road because they are just 10 and 7 on the road Uh, they are coming off of a road sweep of stats so you know maybe that 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 hurdle is already being being uh you know crossed for for the Owls, but I, I think being being at home is a is a big deal here. And, and for liberty's sake, uh, you know, this is a team we talked about a lot early in the season. They went out, they beat Florida, they were they ran up in the rankings pretty high. They hit a Sun play, and we thought that they were just kind of roll through this conference again like they did last year. It has not been that easy for them, and a that's a reflection of how good the a Sun is this year that they hit some speed bumps without playing the the other team here that that looks to be so good. Uh but but I also think that that was probably good for Liberty. Um they did not do anything that really has torpedoed their at large chances, but they uh they faced that adversity. They you know, they they went through some of these struggles with with a guy like Trey Gibson and uh you know, now we'll we'll see if they come out the better for it, but this is this is a big weekend for that. Like you said, Joe, this is this is a chance for Liberty to prove that uh they they hit that adversity and they learned from it because this is going to be a very tough, tough series.
2: Yeah. If you're Scott Jackson, their coach, like you're, you're probably enjoying this opportunity to, to look at what, what you have in front of you and tell your team, like, look, you know, we like, yes, it has not been easy. It has not gone like we'd hoped, but everything is still in front of us. Right. Like, We could still obviously win the conference. We could still be a regional team. We could be an at-large team still, even though we've we've lost some games and took on some water. And so that's I think that's that's all true. Uh, My parting thing here with Kennesaw State: it's a little bit of what I wrote about in Three Strikes. Kind of interesting the way they built this team. It's kind of a modern college baseball program. I don't know if they really set out to be this. I just think it's a byproduct of the way they went about building it, but. You can kind of look at this as kind of what a modern, especially at the mid-major level, a modern college baseball program could look like. They are piggybacking starters, and we've seen teams do this before. Shout out VCU. Um, But they are piggybacking starters because that's kind of what they feel like is their best chance to win games. Um, They also took on a bunch of transfers, like from places as obvious as the national champions, Mississippi State. They got Josh Hatcher, who is their best hitter. They've a couple of guys from the D2 ranks, including Cash Young, their leading home run hitter. Uh, they've got a weekend starter from Butler, um, you a know, weekend starter from a Division II school in Minnesota. Like They pulled transfers in from everywhere, um, and it's working. And we've seen teams take on a bunch of transfers and it not work before. And so um, you can read in the story about why they feel like maybe they had a little bit of an advantage uh, as a staff in bringing on those transfers, but um, you know, if you talk about a, a team that has taken advantage of what could be from a transfer standpoint at the mid-major level, because we talk so much about how it could hurt mid majors, um, this team I think is showing you what you the advantage you can actually have as a mid major with transfers, and and um, so from that standpoint, I think it's a cool story because I think it can kind of turn the narrative on its head about what the transfer portal does in college baseball.
1: Absolutely. And th- that's one thing that, you know, not to relitigate the transfer portal, but that- that's one thing I think a lot of people don't think about is that they just think about the the negatives for the, the small schools that they're going to lose their best players. Well, yes, that that will happen, that we've seen that happen, but also the reverse happens that guys don't make it at the big schools and they trickle down. And uh, so I-, I think it's great that, that you do you are able to see the the potential other side of that here uh, with, with Kennesaw State, and um, you know, a very very interesting team to highlight. I'm I'm glad that uh, you were able to connect with uh, with Ryan Coe this week uh, ahead of uh, what is their their biggest series, uh, at least to this point in the season, and, and we'll see uh, we'll we'll see how they. Uh, progress here down the stretch if the next time they meet liberty which is actually on the last week of the regular season if that if that is just as big a deal uh or even a bigger deal as as this one all right that's going to do it for us today on this edition of the baseball america college podcast very busy weekend around the country um so busy i guess that they uh they're giving us an extra day of the weekend uh to, to deal with it all uh we'll have everything covered for you on baseballamerica.com throughout the weekend uh Everything's moved up today, but but it's all gonna be there uh all weekend long. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We'll be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast on Monday, wrapping up the weekend. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Find us, hit the subscribe, hit the follow button, and we'll pop right back into your feed on Monday as we come at you twice a week during the regular season on Monday and typically Thursdays, but uh, this week, Wednesday again, uh, because we are, everything has moved up because of, we'll wish you a happy Easter. And we'll be back here to to talk with you guys on Monday. So for Joe, I'm Teddy. Thank you all for listening.